Let's pray together. God, we can sing and can say his kingdom come, his will be done. We can hear words that challenge us to be a family and a family of families, or we can do it, Lord. And so I pray this morning that we would respect your heart, that we would call out to you that even though there's a party coming later, even though there might be distractions in our head and in our hearts this morning, you've gathered us as the church today to hear from you, to be challenged by you, to be inspired by you, to be encouraged by you. Lord, we love you. We do want to worship you and praise you. And now we engage our minds with our hearts and we want to hear from your holy, inspired word, the Bible. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, please have a seat. I hope, it, I hope you feel that it's okay to get excited. I don't know if you came in on time, but it is Super Bowl Sunday, and I think that is a great American holiday, and, and I'm really looking forward to it. Just make some noise if you actually do get excited about this day. Just, it's cool. Okay. And then we have a lot of people who could care less, it appears. And uh, yeah, and I don't understand. If the Seahawks were in it, would you care? Okay. If, if you were in it, would you care? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine? <laughs> we would be dead immediately. So when I was seven years old, going on eight, it was the first time I ever saw the Super Bowl that, I, you know, like I knew that it existed. And I was watching the game. And uh, do we have a picture of this? It was the Super Bowl 16, the San Francisco 49ers and the Cincinnati Bengals. And I wasn't too loyal yet to any teams. I hadn't gotten into the Seahawks as a young uh, kid growing up in Spokane yet. And I just turned on the TV that day. I don't even remember if my family was there or I love sports so much. And it's like, this thing I didn't even know existed was unfurled before my eyes. And they played highlights of every Super Bowl that morning, you know, for like on an eight-hour loop. And I was just in heaven. And I didn't have a team, so I had to pick a team. Jay, I had to pick a team. And there was a choice to be made. I could pick the San Francisco 49ers. Five Super Bowls to come. Joe Montana. Jerry Rice, all of these great, illustrious athletes. They never stop trying to win. Jim Harbaugh's khakis, all of these great things. That was for you. That was for one person. Or I could pick the Bengals, who are one of the most embarrassing franchises in NFL history. The backstory on them is it was the guy who owned the Browns, who were another set of winners, uh, he had to leave, and he was so mad that he just did the same uniform, and it just said, this is in the early days, it just said bangles in like, you know, uh, in just government language across the, across the helmet. But when I opened my eyes that day, and the TV, the 25-inch, 400-pound television that was in our living room <laughs> came on, I saw those beautiful tiger-striped helmets. Joe Montana, five Super Bowls a happy life of rooting for the Niners, or those helmets are cool. <laughs> I chose the pretty helmets, Annie. And here's the problem. I'm so loyal. I'm so loyal with stuff like this that the Bengals were my team for the next 20 years. <laughs> I've never been to Ohio. I don't know the difference between a Bengal tiger and a tiger tiger. 
I don't care at all about anything. I, don't, I, 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 I lost track at Boomer Esiason, but I would still root for them because I was loyal and they were my team until I finally renounced them in about 1998 and picked another winner, the Arizona Cardinals. <laughs> so I'm just going to go through all of them. I'm so messed up that way. I used to love the Patriots, but then when they started beating everyone, I'm like, I don't like them anymore. Give me an underdog who has no business being there. That's my team. That's who I am. So you got to make a good choice is what I'm saying. You've got to make a good choice. And especially if it's a choice, it's going stick to stick with you for a while. When we get to Philippians, the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul has given them a lot of great spiritual advice, a lot of what we like to call Hobby Lobby scriptures. They are the ones that now ring out and live on, and people burn them into signs and put them on their yards, put them on their walls. (laughs) The really intense people put them in their yards. But it's important to Paul that he understands as you're applying this truth I've told you, as you move forward in your faith, as Paul writes from a jail cell and has no control over the situation, it's important to me, Paul says, that you follow me and not just what looks convenient or what looks alluring or what sounds easier or better. The church at Philippi had a momentous decision to make too. Would they follow those who told them they could do whatever they wanted? Remember, there were the Judaizers who wanted them to go back to the law. Well, there's a whole other problem in Philippi. There's this group of people that believes in the, in the work of Jesus Christ. Now you don't have to be holy. Now you don't have to be good. Now you don't have to abstain from anything. This is a movement that lives on unto today. They wanted to claim their Christian forgiveness would allow them to do whatever they wanted. And so would the church at Philippi follow those people or would they follow the clear and plain lives of Paul and other mature believers who named Christ and lived their lives for his glory? We have a similar big choice today. We live in a day and age in the church where we don't have to be holy anymore. Nobody cares. Nobody cares what you do. Churches aren't teaching about sin and about confession and about repentance. We don't live in an age, in fact, we live in an age where to say, I want to be holy is heard, I want to be a holy roller, or I want to be holier than you, or I want to be perceived as holy. And so we have a tempting direction that we can go, where we don't have to give to the church, we don't have to sacrifice for one another, we don't have to even participate in worship, or prayer, or singing, or Bible reading, or follow really any of the moral or ethical practices of Christianity in order to be accepted these days as a good Christian. We simply have to say we are a Christian in the places where that is advantageous, and we have to not say we are a Christian or what we really believe about what's going on in our world when that is a more prudent social decision. Dave, talk about football again. Paul says, much like Jesus said, guys, it's me or them. It's life or death. It's heaven or hell. Choose wisely who you will follow. And I want to encourage you, exhort you, beg you, admonish you today to follow Jesus and to follow those who follow Jesus. Can I get an amen? Tommy, will you give me one? Tommy's here from the simple church, the 6 p.m. First time he's gotten up this early and come to church. I'm so excited that you're here. And he's rooting for the Chiefs. All right, good job. 
Brothers, join in imitating me, Paul writes. Remember the awesome talk Colin gave last week? The talk I gave before that? The pressing on, the striving towards the goal. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is one you'll apply in your church life, in your relational life, as you follow and align with people who follow Jesus, but I hope especially you'll apply it in the way that you lead and the way you conduct your lives as other people come around you in your place of business, in your, on your campus, in your family, and see Jesus and the version of Jesus they see in your life. There are those who truly walk with Jesus. Paul tells us then, I'll tell you now, and there are those who don't. Paul simply says, be like those who do. And I want to challenge you today over and over to follow Jesus and follow those who follow Jesus. When Paul says, join in imitating me, or as some translations say in another place in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. How many of us could say that easily? Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me in the manner. Follow me in the pattern that I follow Christ, you follow Christ in that way. What traits do we see in St. Paul? We could go through all kinds of different things about this. One of my favorite passages is 1 Corinthians 11 that just indicates his deep passion for the church and how much that weighs on him above and beyond everything else going on in his life. Paul is honest. Paul is humble. Paul has a sense of duty, confidence, dependence on Christ, hard work, grace under pressure. Paul is a man who gave up in his culture everything Thing, not so that he could have nothing, but so that he could have a different kind of everything. He gave up what the world says was everything, prestige, power, wealth, influence, to have what God said was truly everything, which is all summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember Philippians 3.8. Indeed, he said, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Can anybody say amen to that? We're not perfect, but man, do we want that for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We could look just at the life of Paul and construct an amazing Christian faith. He says, imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk in the example according to us. And so what can I see 
in other believers. Proverbs 27 has that great verse, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. You can write these down or think about them in your group as you talk this week, but we should never give up meeting together and instead we should encourage one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. You wanna be around other believers and not just in rows, but in circles, in homes and in rooms in the church and around tables in Bible studies because we see their strengths completing and helping and informing our lives compared to our weaknesses and back and forth, of course. We get around other believers and we can follow them. Sometimes we see a different perspective. We see a different perspective. We are often, no matter how much we try to untrain this out of our mind, we are just so wired with selfish ambition. Even the godliest people in this room, I'll include myself as one of you, we think that we're fighting the good fight. We think we're doing what is best for everyone, but it's almost impossible to root out selfish desire this side of heaven. And so sometimes we need to surround ourselves with other people who have a different perspective, who aren't just gonna tell us what we wanna hear, which really goes to the third one. And you'll hear this in a lot of our training materials and a lot of our uh, equipping of disciple makers. We can see in other believers truth and grace is what we need from one another. John 1.14 says Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. We need friends sometimes who are full of grace and we often need friends who are full of truth. But the delicious thing that's called Christian fellowship is when we have friends who are full of grace and full of truth, who can deliver truth with grace and who can deliver grace truthfully. A good friend will give you both. And outside of God's holy church, many, many people, when we whine to them, when we complain about our status of employment or our family relationships or our little bickerings that we might have, they will often line up in the name of friendship and tell us what we want to hear. They'll give us the easy road. They'll tell us that other person is an idiot or we deserve better. And it's really unique and is becoming more and more unique to Christianity that we have good friends who would tell us the truth that we need to hear. Let's do that more. Let's tell one another the truth. The proverb says, better are the wounds of a friend than the kiss of an enemy. We need truth and grace. And Paul says, look for it in me, look for it in others. There's some neat language stuff going on when Paul says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those. Linguistically, we're looking at an idiom that talks about you have us as a pattern. This is really cool. You have the Apostle Paul, the other disciples. Hey, Mark, it's good to see you out there. We have the Apostle Paul. We have the other disciples. We have the believers in Philippi who are walking. You and I have one another who are true in Christ to watch as a pattern, not a copy, but as a pattern. We watch one another. What do they do with their kids? Or or what do they do in their work situation? Or how do they treat their wife when, when we're out together in public? Or how do they do this? Or how do they do that? And we have this pattern. Now, my wife, I'm, I'm so proud of her. She's so good at so many things. One of the things she loves to do is crochet. I know a lot of you fellows enjoy the crocheting. But she likes to crochet. And she'll show me the pattern. Does anybody in here do that? Anybody in here? Okay. Like, it's just, it, it, Lenita, it makes no sense when 
I look at it. It's got these weird words and numbers and stuff. And I would have thought it said knit one, stitch two, you know, pearl eight. But it's just got all these weird things. And sometimes I'll be sitting across from Brenda while she's doing this and she's into it. And, and she'll just be like, this pattern doesn't work. And I'm like, let me look at it. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And all, they all look like this. They're all very confusing. And she'll just say, it doesn't work. And she'll sit there and she'll have to get her creativity engaged. And she'll have to look at some pictures. And then she'll come up with something. And she's like, it's not a left-hand cross. It's a right-hand under. Of course. (laughs) Of course. And see, whenever we have patterns... They're not always perfect. And so we can't look at one another and have that pressure of, I need to parent exactly like pastor so-and-so says, or exactly like brother or sister so-and-so tells me to do. We have the pattern of God's holy word, and then we work on it together. Hopefully we show it to one another. Does this make sense to you? What you said sounds great, but my kid is a monster. <laughs> you know, you, well, no. Well, then maybe just tweak it a little bit. Use your common sense. Use your creativity in adherence to the word. Really neat what he says about a pattern. Something you can look into if you get excited about that kind of stuff. But Paul breaks it up into two things. Follow Jesus or, and follow those who follow him. And the passage is, is really uh, cut into two things. The easily tempting worldly detour. And then we're going to look at later the path to Christ. Let me talk about the tempting world, worldly detour in verse 18, when he starts to describe the people that the Philippian church is tempted to follow, he describes them thusly, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now remember in Philippians, in any book of scripture, every word counts. We believe in the verbal inspiration of God's word. Every word counts. I want to pull out some of these words. And mind you, you could have a different opinion, but these are not, in my mind, evil, uh, savage wolves that are outside of the church and everybody can go, oh, they're the bad people. These are people infiltrating infiltrating the church with a cheap and not real version of what the gospel is and what grace is and what sanctification is and what holiness is. And they want the church to be in their image. And Paul says, don't follow them. Even though it's easier, even though it's alluring, follow me and others who follow our pattern. First thing I notice, because words count, every word counts, is the word many. Many do this. Then and now, many. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those that find it are few. Every word counts. Many have set themselves up as enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross? Matthew twelve thirty is a great scripture to look up. If you are not, uh, they are not for me, they are against me. These are lawless livers. Those who live, yeah, not drinkers, (laughs) those who live lawlessly. The antinomian movement is what scholars call it. We won't use that word again today. The movement of the time felt that the law of Israel, the law of God, was so dead 
in Christ that there were now no restraints to sinful behavior. So lost are these people. But here's the rub. So religious at the same time, likely. So lost, so licentious, but so liturgic and so religious in their pursuit of God. Enemies of the cross. Paul had confidence in the way that he talks about them, that these are not little misled believers. But he had confidence, if you read his language, that they were never regenerated, never saved, and yet were in the church. Many enemies, destruction is their end. In verse 19. It's not a temporal end, it's an eternal end, and it seems to be eternal because the Greek word used for their destruction is apocalypto or apocalypse, and it's evocative of Matthew 7's haunting language and destruction and depart from me and gnashing of teeth and all of that when Jesus says, depart from me, for though you've done many things, I never knew you. Their God is their belly, Romans 16, 18 talks about this same idea, the appetite for destruction that's not unique to guns and roses, but is unique to those who go after their passions and their pursuits instead of God. Their God is their belly, means that their God, better said, is their appetites, their longings, their pleasures, their passions for these things. And maybe not evil, put on a goat mask, dance around the maypole stuff, but just passions for the things that the culture offers as happiness and fulfillment. And then this was my favorite part in study and in our study team and in just digging into it this week. When it says they glory in their shame, it might be more accurate to say they glory these pseudo-religious folks. Glory, (laughs) oh, glory. They glory in their unglory. They glory, sorry, in unglory. So revealing of our day and age. I want to just make the jump from then. They're not glorying in the glory of God. And they're not just accepting the evil ways of the world. They are glorying with a glory that's reserved for God for our earthly appetites. So revealing of our day and age. It's not enough that the church excel at love towards those in same-sex relationships because we do. It's not enough that the church holds our tongue or our collective tongue in polite company regarding the transgender delusion, which we largely do. How many Christians do you know that walk around spouting off about these things or making big pronouncements? We hold on in the name of love and restraint and grace in so many of these issues. And it's not enough that we look past the ever-present, shall I say, almost omnipresent glorification of extramarital sex in our pornographic culture. But now, so many in the church flaunt our complete lack of self-control with food, alcohol, spending, pot, 
pills of all kinds, sex of any kind, and a million other sins in case I didn't cover yours or mine adequately. Sins that formerly embarrassed or shamed us that we now boast about, trumpeting not just it's okay and we should love and get along, but so many in the church trumpeting our freedom from a former repression and our freedom from orthodox dogma, belief, or orthodoxy, instead of falling on our knees on our own behalf and on behalf of a crooked culture in confession and repentance. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I think, describes those in the church when it talks about someday in the future, Paul writes, they'll be lovers of self, full of greed and disobedience and debauchery. We'll call evil good and good evil, Isaiah 5.20 tells us. Ephesians 5 says that there are those, it is shameful even to speak of the things not to glory in their unglory, but the scriptures tell us it's shameful to even speak of the things that some do in secret. And then we get this interesting part in what might feel like judgment or drawing lines is we see Paul's tears. Look at Paul's tears. I do think if you're in ministry, whether you're good at it or not, (laughs) you relate to the things Paul says. It pains Paul that there are false believers leading his sheep astray. And notice in this instance of scripture, he's not moved to judgment or wrath as much as sadness and grief at the gospel being treated so shabbily and people buying it. This is so important in the church's nascent stage and now that he has told them often, repeatedly, over and over again about this problem in the pages of the New Testament. It's not a matter of they overemphasize grace or they have a different take on things. He's saying the ultimate indictment, their minds are set on earthly things. In the name of Christianity, or the way, or the community, or whatever it was called at this point in history, these fakes have their minds set not on Jesus Christ, but on earthly things. This is the big condemnation, and it's not as wild as you might think it is. Earthly things. These fakes would be comfortable in our world where the loudest argument wins, where celebrities are pushed in front of microphones and counted as wise, though they often have nothing to say. And I'm not picking on celebrities, I'm picking on microphones. They would fit in so well Nowadays, where so many of us glom onto those who are wealthy or learned 
or successful by whatever the standard is that we have or the circles we're in, and we kiss up to them in ways that are so socially acceptable and normative that nobody even knows they're doing it. Church, don't follow people like this who claim wisdom but speak foolishness. Don't follow people like this who use the word love but hate God and his truth. Don't follow people like this who have learned the game of the day and so they really don't ever say anything other than to judge you or to look down at you for your quaint or archaic beliefs. Don't look up to people like this. Don't be like this. Don't make the Apostle Paul cry. Follow Jesus and follow those who follow Jesus. You remember the easily tempting worldly detour. Now Paul goes to the beautiful, mystical, godly destination. Verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. How could he be in prison? How could he be so persecuted and so maligned and all of his work always being undone? And then how could he have so much love? He's got so much love. He's got so much love. Every word counts in Philippians and in the scriptures. I want to give you the words from our beautiful, mystical, godly decision, uh, destination. Citizenship. Look it up in 1 Peter 2, 10 through 12, if you like. Our citizenship is in heaven. Don't forget your place, your purpose, your people, and your first love. The Philippians really needed to know, and so do we maybe, yes, that our allegiance belongs to God. They were really fascinated in that time and in that place with having a, citizen, a Roman citizenship and the things that went with that. And it's helpful for us to understand that we really don't have a dual citizenship as much when we think of heaven and earth and heaven and the United States of America as much as we are resident aliens or whatever the appropriate, I really should have thought about what was the politically correct comment for that today. In this world, we should not conduct ourselves hoping to be accepted by others by this culture or even our church culture, which is often unspoken but picked up in certain settings, we should obey the laws of our homeland, God's kingdom, as ambassadors. Every word counts. We see Savior and Lord packed in there together. Acts 5.31 uses those together. From it, Paul says, we await a Savior. This has just got to be 
poetic or, or wow, and, and, and I don't know this whole thing. If, if Paul is really up here like, guys, it's going to be okay because one day, remember I had a vision and I saw it. I don't know if he's just talking about the by and by and, and the heavenly realms and the streets of gold and all the imagery of it's going to be worth it, it's going to be worth it, it's going to be worth it. As much as he might be saying right now we have this kingdom, right now we have this value, but I think he's pointing us towards the future because he brings in the body and he brings in the transformation. But the Philippians needed to know this. He's savior. Yes. Thank you. Praise God. But he's Lord. And earlier in Philippians 2, when it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess on heaven and on earth and all of those kind of things, that it's not, and and that it's not that the name Jesus, which was a common name, would be up in heaven. It's that the name Lord, Lord Jesus, is what would be written and people would have to bow to and would want to bow to and would want to confess as Lord. Lowly and glorious. He tells us about the journey from lowly to glorious. Great in 1 Corinthians 15 about that, that we are transformed like in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We could go in depth about what is this glorious body. I tell you, as a middle-aged man, yeah, I said it. I can't wait. I can't wait. I've been running again for a month or two. I go out and I pull my hamstring because I turned my head wrong. I have things in my shoes. Do you know how hard it is to be cool when you know there's a thing in your shoe? Now you know. And something that probably rang richly to them because they weren't spending every waking moment avoiding aging and death and reality like we do. But should ring to some of us is there's this transformation and the exciting part is it's another way I get to be like Jesus. Not a Jesus, in case you're on cult watch. I get to be like him in this way, glorified, transformed. We finish this one up in the first verse of chapter four because there's no numbers in the, the early manuscripts and we think it ends right here, this little thought, but it also bridges nicely to Colin's talk next week. Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. man, who are we in Christ that we cannot just persevere and not just bear it, but that we can stand firm, planted, rooted, grounded in the Lord. Just a stellar vision of what awaits. And if you got too depressed in the first part, we are not worms. We are not weasels. We are not worthless. I mean, our bodies will be uh, transformed. Our decaying, flabby, fainting bodies in some way that kind of accurately depict our inconsistent and fading spiritual pursuits will one day reflect our holiness in Christ. 
Perhaps this was included because those false believers treated the body currently as their God, their belly, if you remember, or because they thought so little of the spiritual world. But Paul wanted to iterate that they were damaging and debauching temples of the Holy Spirit. And just in case you might read these last few verses and wonder how this is going to happen, Paul reminds us that he God, through Jesus Christ, has the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. That's your God. That's your Jesus. That's your Savior. That's your forgiver. That's your healer. That's your communer. That's your builder. That's your giver. That's your sacrificer. That's your God. His name's Jesus Christ. He's at the right hand of the Father. And he's so awesome. He's so amazing that we need the Holy Spirit to come that we would even have a prayer or a chance to be like him on this earth. Follow Jesus and follow those who follow Jesus. Some simple applications today. I think you know what God wants you to do in so many ways I don't want you to miss what might be a little bit artistic or a little more abstract, but here's my number one application. Follow Jesus, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. Like a kid sitting in Simon Says waiting for that little mishap, you know what Jesus says and you do it. Be a good example. Live like a citizen of heaven. Follow Jesus. Be a good example. Live like a citizen of heaven. Matthew chapter 6, I'd like to close with. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be be also. Would you pray with me? Lord, we just take a moment and bow our heads, and I pray that as we sing, there would be interacting with our hearts and our minds about who you are and what you'd have of us. And I pray as we sing, it would be worship. Lord, I pray you'd remind, because we're easily distracted, remind each of us in this room that we can spend this time praying, confessing sin, singing, sitting, standing, whatever it might be that would express the sobriety and the desire to love you and to please you and to apply your words today. Thank you, God, that we are not perfect and can never be this side of heaven, but you are perfect, Lord. You are a perfect example of godliness, Jesus Christ. And it's in your words and in your church and in your truth that we can find what it is to know you, to follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.